Live from WNUR News, I'm Miranda Chabot. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Job and health insecurity, how Compass employees struggle for safety during the pandemic. No, we haven't really had access to get testing or anything like that. A look at K-pop cultural appropriation. We will be taking time to understand more about our international fans to ensure this never happens again. And the battle against pandemic pimples. It seems to look like acne. Those stories tonight. First up, Reporter Olivia Lloyd spoke with Kellogg professor Therese McGuire to discuss the failure of the fair tax amendment in Illinois and what that means for the state's budget deficit. Earlier this week, Illinois voters rejected the proposed fair tax amendment, which would change Illinois' constitution to allow for a graduated income tax. Right now, the constitution only allows for a flat income tax, which does not scale up or down according to your income bracket. Professor Therese McGuire works in the strategy department at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. Her area of expertise is state and local public finance. She has advised various state governments on their tax policy and has taken an interest in the fight for the graduated income tax in Illinois. In Illinois, I've had conversations with policymakers about their taxes, uh, you know, over the years. And the actual, the income tax and the sales tax in Illinois have been of interest to me to reform for decades. Um, I think that there are problems with both. The, the, the two major sources of revenue for, their, for Illinois and many states are the general sales tax and the individual income tax. And um, so I've st- I, uh, studied in the structures of those taxes and there are you know, various parts of the structure that I think need to reform that would make them better taxes. The income tax here in Illinois, it's a flat rate tax, as you know, and that's um, in the constitution in Illinois, it's required to be a, a one tax rate. It, uh, I think, you know, the income tax tends to be uh, the engine for uh, distributing the tax burden in a more equitable fashion across different types of uh, different income brackets. The general sales tax results in a regressive distribution of that burden, that the, the tax burden as a share of income is higher for low-income people than high-income people just because they spend more of their income. And so when you have those two main taxes, the, the individual income tax can be the engine for, for shifting the burden more towards higher-income individuals. And so the amendment was specifically to... The, 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 on the ballot was an amendment to allow a graduated tax rate structure for the income tax in Illinois. And I think it, uh, it but it was also linked to the legislature uh, back in 2019 had passed a new set of graduated rates, tax rates that would go into effect if the amendment were to pass. And uh, those, not only was it a graduated rate structure, but it was an increase in, in uh, the amount of revenue that would come through the individual income tax. I think it's around $3.6 billion increase that would have come through with that new tax system. Um, so the anti-amendment campaign st- stressed very strongly the link between if you pass this graduated rate struck, you know, the allow, um, you know, amend the constitution to allow a graduated rate structure, what's going to happen is that the legislature has already passed a law that's going to increase your taxes. So they portrayed it as a tax increase. 
which in fact it was because of that linkage um, that happened. I was quite saddened by the fact that the graduated rates uh, it, that it failed because I think allowing a graduated rate structure is a good is good tax policy. Whether or not you you implement graduated rates or keep it flat, allowing a graduated rate structure is good tax policy in my view. So you're talking about some reforms that you said would be necessary in both the sales tax and the income tax structure. What kind of reforms do you think would be beneficial to the state of Illinois? So, so two things with the individual income tax. One is, I think, you know, we should allow a graduated rate structure. That would be better. That would be a better tax structure, in my view. The other thing is we do not tax retirement income. So when we're defining the base of the income, you know, it's wages, it's, you know, uh, interest earned, it, you know, but not retirement income, even though it is taxed at the federal level and many other states tax retirement income. So in my view, you would have, you should have as, you know, different types of income shouldn't be treated differently. And so I would have a broad base, you know, broadly defined income. And then I would allow, at least allow whether or not we as a society or policymakers would, would want to have graduated rate, but allow graduated graduated rate on the income tax. On the sales tax, the primary, in my view, the primary structural flaw with the sales tax in Illinois is it only taxes, it, it taxes uh, largely tangible goods and it doesn't tax services. So our economy over the last several decades has been shifting away from tangible goods and towards services. So we've been, our tax base has been really kind of atrophying as that the changes in our consumption have happened. And so in order to continue to raise the same amount of revenue, you have to have a higher tax rate. And also the uh, services tend to be consumed disproportionately by higher income people. Um, and so by not taxing services, you're making your sales tax even more regressive than it would need to be if you were to extend the base to services. So, I guess more in line with the fair tax amendment, why don't you think it passed? I think it failed because the anti-amendment campaign was extremely effective. And it was, it kind of owned the airwaves, both the radio and the TV airwaves. They had very, um, the campaign, like I, I think I said this earlier, they stressed that having a graduated rate income uh, tax system would uh, resolve on higher taxes, make it easier for politicians to increase taxes, which by the way, I think that's not a true statement. I, they can, you know, you can increase a flat rate. I don't know if it's easier or not, but you can increase a flat rate or you can increase a graduated rate. It, you know, I think that was uh, misleading, but they were, they had a very effective campaign. Um, I think voters, read, you know, thought that by voting for the amendment, they were voting for a tax increase. And tax increases very rarely, if you take it to the voters, a tax increase to the voters, it very rarely passes, very rarely. I think referenda in general are hard for uh, voters to figure out what, on, on tax policy issues, are hard to figure out exactly what you're voting on and what, what the implications are going to be. If, so if you're unsure, you vote no. If you think this is what it's about as a tax increase, you're going to vote no. The vast majority of people are going to vote no. So I think it was a squandered opportunity. I wish the Democrats had not passed that conditional tax increase, conditional on the amendment. I wish they had just put graduate rate structure on the amendment. And then if it had passed, 
you know, say we're going to have a special session of the of the General Assembly, or we're going to take it up in January, or when we come back and have a, a thorough debate in Springfield about what the new tax system should look like. Right. So maybe because they'd already set that structure of what the income brackets would be, you think that was kind of what prompted voters to fear, you know, that their taxes were going to go up because of Springfield. Right. right. So I guess what is the next step for J.B. Pritzker for the entire Illinois legislature because Illinois is facing a budget deficit right now. It has even before the pandemic. So what right. are the next steps for them? But it'd be unconscionable to close the gap by cutting spending. Uh, there's not a, you know, it's too big a gap. We'd be really cutting to, to the bone in a lot of really important programs. I mean, state government, you know, what state government does really important when we're in a downturn in the economy, which of course is where we are today, right? So we can't solve it by cutting spending. I don't think we can kind of nickel and dime either with a bunch of, you know, smaller um, sales taxes or not. You know, there, there is one bright spot in, in revenue for the state of Illinois right now, which is uh, the, the marijuana tax, because we, you know, we legalize marijuana and there's, there's revenues coming in there, but just, again, there's not enough revenue there. So they're going to have to go Federal government could could you know pass a, a second um, you know CARES Act and, and send money to state and local government. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon anyway. And so they're going to have to. I think they're going to have to go to one of their two big uh, sources of revenue, which is the sales tax, which we already have. Chicago sales tax rate, which is a combination of the state and the city and the county, is the highest in the nation. Okay, the, so the sales tax rate in Chicago is the highest in the nation. And we have a very high statewide sales tax rate. So, you know, you want to uh, extend the base of the sales tax of services and raise more revenue that way, um, or in the income tax, extend the base to a retirement income and raise more revenue that way, or do you want to, or we increase the flat rate? We increase the flat rate. Do you think it's likely that the flat rate will be increased? Um, I think it's very unlikely that a Democratic, you know, we have a Democratic governor, Democratic, the legislature is Democratic, both the Senate and the House. I think it's very unlikely that they will extend the income tax to retirement income. I think they won't touch that. I, I don't know that they have any other choice other than to raise the flat rate. I, I could be wrong. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not under the tent, so I'm not exactly sure what else, what other options they have. But it strikes me as, you know, we have a big enough revenue need here that we're going to have to that we might have, uh, that they're gonna to have to increase the, the flat rate. So then I guess that also brings me to the question, what is the future of any kind of graduated income tax in Illinois? Is that gonna come up again mm -hmm. in a decade? And I, you know, I am not, I don't have a crystal ball on that. I, I kind of feel like we, you know, we blew our shot on this one, right? I kind of feel like it'll be hard to go back to the voters with this, uh, unless there's a, I don't know. I don't know how it could get uh, could get presented in a way that um, I don't know. I, I I really don't know how to answer that question, Olivia. I think we I think we have we lost our chance. It's an opportunity that was that 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 that's gone by, and how and when it could come back to the voters, um, I have no idea. And we might need a whole new set of players. For WNUR News. I'm Olivia Lloyd. Northwestern University is reopening, but safety measures aren't equal for everyone on campus. 
And as underclassmen return to Evanston, Compass employees can't be sure that their health or their jobs are safe. Marie Mendoza reports. When the pandemic began, Bernard Sabal worked at Northwestern University as a cook for a Kellogg School of Management building. He is a subcontracted worker for Compass Group USA. One day, everything just halted. Everything kind of just took a pause because that's when we found out how serious this pandemic really was. I remember there was a few of the Kellogg staff that got tested positive for the coronavirus. And at that point, my company uh, pretty much just halted operation, my company and Northwestern. Bernard, like so many other Compass workers, was left in a limbo, unsure of what the future would hold. When the university reopened in fall quarter, he was able to get his job back, unlike many other workers who remain laid off. Bernard was working at the Global Hub until October 18th. That's when Kellogg announced that it would shut down for two weeks. The decision was made after four Kellogg students tested positive for COVID-19, and many more were linked to a social gathering off campus. Kellogg shut down, and its home, the Global Hub, shut down too. Kellogg is set to reopen on October 30th, but with COVID-positive cases on the rise in Illinois, it's unclear whether the school will follow through with its plan, leaving Bernard with uncertainty about the coming weeks. You know, I was excited because I finally was able to, you know, get back at the job and I was going to be able to be covered by my health insurance. And now, you know, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but what I do know is our health and our safety comes first. When I talked with Bernard, the first thing he told me was that he enjoys his job. He's worked there for nearly seven years and that he cares deeply about the Northwestern community. So when he got that call to go back in the midst of a pandemic, he was worried. Being laid off for almost eight months, I, I received a phone call to come back to work. And one of the first things that I was concerned about was the health and safety for our students and our workers. But when I actually got in the building, I see that they took a good step on providing us with the right, the proper PPE. But this doesn't go far enough. Compass workers do not have access to the free testing that Northwestern does. So if they suspect an outbreak, they have to look for testing on their own. So when Kellogg shut down, that's what Bernard did. And luckily for me, it came out negative. But at the same time, no, we haven't really had access to get testing or Anything like that, which would, especially now, seeing that, you know, our building closed down and it may be people that's infected in there. I feel like, you know, they should give us access to that, but we haven't received that. In a statement released to the Daily Northwestern, university spokesperson John Yates says that they have taken effective measures to ensure the safety of Northwestern community members, like implementing testing, contact tracing, and quarantine procedures. But Bernard was never asked to get tested. Because I myself, I'm a cook, and I have a lot of interactions with the students, and I really care about their safety. I really care about their well-being. And I just don't want no students or no workers to be exposed to this, because at the end of the day, our lives is what really matters. Compass workers also don't have access to hazard and quarantine pay. And there's no guarantee that they won't receive disciplinary action for COVID-related absences leaving workers in a tight spot, risking either their jobs or their lives. 
last week, you know, I woke up and I was feeling just awful. And I call I called in and I knew by me calling in that I wasn't going to get paid for the time that I, when I was gone. I feel like Northwestern and Compass, they need to agree on paying the workers quarantine pay. I feel like they need to agree on paying the workers hazard pay. Hazard pay is, hey, you know what? Our workers are out there sacrificing their life and risking their life every day. So I feel like it's only right that you guys provide the tools that we need and, and, and that's pretty much, you know, prevent the spreading of COVID. Unite Here Local One is the union representing Northwestern service workers. Lead research analyst Noah Carson Nelson says that Compass quarantine pay policies have changed since the pandemic began. Through the summer, um, workers had an assurance that if they were told to quarantine or if they were supposed to quarantine, they would have two weeks pay. So they could stay home, not worry about missing bills, not worry about feeding their family, right? They were still getting their regular pay. Um, that expired on August 31st, uh, just as many people were coming back to work, right? Um, so now people who are working are worried that if they're expected to quarantine, how are they going to pay their bills? According to research done by the union, the average wage for Northwestern Compass workers is around $15, with the lowest being a little under $13 and the highest being around $25. For many of these folks, the negative effects of the pandemic have been exacerbated by such low wages. I think many folks can acknowledge is not enough, right? And was not enough pre-pandemic, right? I think we know that's not a living wage. I think it became abundantly clear when folks were laid off basically overnight that making that wage is a deadly thing, right? It's a dangerous thing, right? Um, and that Compass at Northwestern can certainly um, compensate their workers more fairly. In September, Compass workers and allies delivered a petition to Northwestern administration. The petition, which has more than 1,600 signatures, outlined specific demands for the health and safety of workers. Among these demands is the continuation of health insurance. Northwestern and Compass have laid off around 500 workers, and on October 31st, all of these people will lose their access to health care in the height of a pandemic. Right now, too, seeing that the fact that, you know, us, the workers, are not working, I feel like, at the end of the day, we should keep our insurance. We should keep this going because we need to take care of ourselves. For WNUR News, I'm Marie Mendoza. The popularity of K-pop is surging worldwide, but that fame is bringing new scrutiny to its star groups. Reporter Jennifer Kim has the story. With BTS ranking first in the Billboard charts and BLACKPINK performing at Coachella, it is clear that the K-pop industry has grown internationally. With the growth in popularity, controversies of K-pop cultural appropriation has rapidly increased as well. On October 12th, K-pop boy group NCT released a new title song, Make a Wish, which they claimed was inspired by the Disney movie Aladdin. During a comeback stage at the Seoul Broadcasting System, SBS, the group's stage set became a controversy for using elements of a prayer by Shia Muslims. Some fans issued a letter to SBS and SM, 
the entertainment in charge of NCT. They requested the broadcasting system to remove the performance and wrote, It's offensive when people are dancing with a prayer background, so we would appreciate it if you do it quickly. This performance, however, is not the first time K-pop artists were accused of cultural appropriation. During a fanzine event this year, boy group Seventeen apologized for singing a cover of the song Curry by boy band Norazo. The song included cultural aspects of India, but many fans titled it racist for reducing the culture to Curry and Taj Mahal. One of Norazo's members, Jobin, apologized on social media and said, I did not realize what the words I used to express India actually meant and how sacred they were. This is surely my mistake. Cultural appropriation as well as racism in K-pop has quite a long history. In 2017, K-pop girl group Mamamoo were criticized for blackface during a parody of Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. The group apologized for their ignorant actions and wrote, We will be taking time to understand more about our international fans to ensure this never happens again. We hope that you will help to educate us on these and other issues so that we can become better people and better artists. Other than NCT, Seventeen, and Mamamoo, K-pop groups such as ATEEZ, EXID, and CLC were all accused of cultural appropriation. While some fans are cancelling many K-pop groups, other fans have encouraged educating the artists on the different cultures. For WNUR, my name is Shang and Jennifer Kim. Has your skin been suffering during the pandemic? If so, you might be falling victim to a new phenomenon in dermatology, maskne. Oddities reporter Helen Bradshaw breaks the story on these breakouts. When Northwestern sophomore Luke Almany moved from Colorado to Florida this summer to work on a farm, he was in for more than just the experience of living in a swing state that refuses to swing. In fact, amidst the heat and humidity, Almany realized he had maskne. There's a point where, like, I looked in the mirror and I, like, really just, like, got actually upset because I really had, like, I had bad acne in high school and then I really had kind of gotten under control at, like, the end of high school, beginning of college. So then, like, when I saw everything going crazy again, like, I actually just got, like, very upset at one point. As if there was a need for more to worry about in the midst of a pandemic and unending election, Acne caused by face masks, often referred to as maskne, is unfortunately a very real phenomenon. And according to Northwestern dermatologist, Dr. Rupal Kundu is all too common. Yes, um, I was in clinic earlier today and I saw a handful of patients with maskne, um, really had not experienced any breakouts prior to and are having it very, very localized under the mask. Um, it seems to be look like acne in the sense that they're usually pretty inflamed bumps or what we call papules, but I do indeed think it's a very real phenomenon. So real that the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology found that out of 700 medical workers surveyed from Hubei, China, 97% experienced skin damage from antiviral protection measures like N95 masks, with over 83% of respondents experiencing the skin damage and irritation on their nose. I've noticed that like where I break out, it tends to be in like pretty much like the edges of my mask. So I get I got like a bad one on the bridge of my nose and I tend to get it like where the mask kind of ends. So I think like pretty much like around the perimeter of the mask is where I get like the most breakouts these days. 
But I think, honestly, what contributes to it most is just, like, stress. It's been, like, you know, just a real stressful year. And as fun as Acne is alone, he's right. The stress of being in a pandemic in an increasingly politically polarized nation doesn't help. So I think when it comes to stress, and we can think of stress as physiological stress, as emotional stress in all different formats, um, can worsen skin disease uh, indirectly. So I definitely don't think stress causes something to occur, but it can be associated because what happens when we're stressed? We don't eat as well. We don't sleep as well. We don't, you know, we don't take care of our skin, our body in the same way. And there's also like something happening internally, physiologically when we have stress. Okay, so we're stressed and that isn't good. But what about if we don't live in the hot Florida humidity like Albany or in the oppressive summers of Hubei? Are Midwesterners safe from Maskney's wrath? Well, not exactly. We think about an area like Chicago or the Midwest, um, we have four seasons. And because of that, we have, our skin is like kind of ever adapting and changing. And although it's colder, we suddenly have the heat on. And so there are all these different kind of factors at place. So the question remains, how can we help stop maskne? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different steps. Um, first is to keep things simple. Um, so cleansing the face and keeping things as clean as possible. Um, if your skin is prone to be dry, definitely moisturizing. And, and most people hydrate their skin every day. So keeping that routine, um, having a, a mask that is clean and well fit, you know, it's, it's snug on the face. There's not a lot of movement using natural fabrics like cotton, um, even if you need to be wearing you know, layers, it's okay. So cotton to be against the skin um, and then potentially putting on one of the more disposable type of masks over that. Um, cleaning the masks you know, regularly as well. Not wearing a lot of makeup underneath in terms of limiting occlusion to the area. Um, as well, hydrating your lips, even with like just good old plain Vaseline for the lip care underneath. Um, and then if possible and safe, you know, taking little hiatuses from the mask, you know, when you can, and again, it has to be a safe environment, getting it off for 15 minutes every four hours or so, um, just to allow your skin to, to breathe a little bit as well. For WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. And now for this week's roundup, let's focus in on the election. As of this report, former Vice President Joe Biden is leading President Donald Trump in two battleground states, Georgia and Pennsylvania. For Biden, a win in Pennsylvania would put him over and win him the presidency. Trump's path to re-election is shrinking, and the president continues to try to undermine confidence in this year's voting process. Yesterday, Trump advanced unsupported accusations of voter fraud, this is an extraordinary and unprecedented effort by a sitting American president to sow doubt about the democratic process. Still, if Joe Biden wins the White House, his ambitions could depend on Georgia. The state was a longtime Republican stronghold, but this year it became a major battleground. Georgia appears poised for twin Senate runoffs on January 5th. These races mean the difference between a Democratic majority giving Biden support for his top priorities or a Republican majority limiting his platform. And in pandemic news, campus cases are down with 37 new positives in the last week. 
that's a positivity rate of 0.65%, a major improvement from our 1% peak in late October, but still spiking compared to results at the beginning of fall quarter. If you're interested in our past election and pandemic coverage, be sure to listen to The Daily Cat, WNUR's morning news briefing. Well, that's all for the WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. On behalf of our producer, Nick Song, reporters Olivia Lloyd, Marie Mendoza, Jennifer Kim, and Helen Bradshaw, and all of us here at WNUR, I'm Miranda Chabot. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcast, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. Your next news break will be Monday, November 9th. Now, back to scheduled programming.